Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 226 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Tuesday morning, October 18th, 2022. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. Bobby, it's been 84 years. Um, no, it hasn't. Um, but it feels like it, it has been, I, I, I'm embarrassed to say I went back and looked and we, we dropped episode 225 seven weeks ago today. So oh good God. job us. I thought, well, it could be worse. I thought you were going to tell me it's been 84 days. It certainly feels like it. Um, good thing nothing's Maybe been Maybe 12 weeks. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so no, since August 30th. Right, right. August thirty first. I mean, like you know, what? Nothing happened in September. I mean, you know, no baseball happened. No, no, <laughs> no, no national security news happened. No class. No books. You know, pre order dropped. I mean, nothing. No happened TV in shows September. to discuss. It's a sh- no movie. No TV shows. To- what have people been doing without us, Steve? I, I, I mean, I, I apparently on Twitter they've been complaining about you know living their lives without us. So oh, we're back. Hi. <laughs> I, feel I want to say though, I mean, I, I hope I hope folks do appreciate. We are recording this at eight in the morning because that was literally the only time I think all week that like we were both available. Uh, this is a I think this is a new one for us. We've certainly never we've never done this on the early side. We we might be much better like this. <laughs> we're gonna find uh, out less more 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 caffeinated, less loopy. Yeah, I, you know, so I was out on an early morning walk in the neighborhood. And as I said to you earlier, I, I saw you, Karen, your wife, was out jogging. And she was like, you guys are recording at 8 in the morning? It's like, who are you people? <laughs> who are you? Well, you, um, I was like, you're, you're that, a that guy, like, the, like, basically on a book tour, which we need to talk about more. And, and I, I, I'm, I'm not on, on my book tour, tour yet. Yeah. You are on the Dean tour. That's the real issue. Well, um, it, it's both. But um, it's it is both. I, about, but, but it's bad for the podcast. The real problem is like I, I I'm doing all this university service and I have no idea why I agreed to do any of it. Yeah, <laughs> the, the the told you so's are like right there at my fingertips, <laughs> waiting to burst forth like lightning from the emperor's hands. I know, but someone's got to defend academic freedom in this university. Um, I don't think it just depends on you, my friend. I'm um, kidding. I know. Um, it is a busy docket for us today. We've got all yes. kinds of Trumplandia stuff. Yes, we've including got, Trump, Trump SCOTUS, Trump subpoena. We we've got a we've got a, a seasonal sale on Trump uh, gear and coverage. Uh, we've got a state secrets policy drop, very quiet. A lot, a couple of quiet policy drops by the Biden administration. So there's a new Justice Department state secrets policy. It's short. It's not actually very exciting, but we'll talk about what it is and how it compares to the status quo ante. Um, we've got a new. We got a peep. It's not PPG now. It's PPM. Uh, a new drone strikes, as it were, policy, although I think that's a misnomer. It's a lethal force or direct action policy, um, and it does not matter what the platform or means of the strike is. In any event, we got a new policy, and we'll talk about that. We got to at least mention the fact that um, there's also a new executive order relating to uh, the the electronic surveillance activities of the U.S. intelligence community, how this relates to the privacy rights of European EU citizens, and all this is part of the ongoing back and forth trying to get um, the the legal obstacles cleared away for companies to be able to exchange transatlantic data, data between the EU right. and cross Atlantic data transfer. Exactly. So we're, we're actually gonna we're gonna break that down in more detail in the later episodes. Too meaty to wedge in here, but we'll know. Yeah, we'll save that one for twenty twenty five. And meanwhile, you've got like 
real cases you're involved in and things happen in them? Things have happened in my real cases. Um, and since we last recorded, pre-orders for my book dropped. So our our prophecy that this is going to turn into the pre-order my book podcast, I think is it may come true in some degree. Uh, that's tinyurl.com slash shadow docket. Just FYI. Order now. Tinyurl.com slash shadow docket. Oh, yeah. yeah. So okay. we're going we're gonna to do that like. 10 times during the show because that we're contractually obligated to you. To- I should just, I should just like create like a, a little, just like our ballpark music, which I can click a button. Yes, yes, yes. You should, <laughs> you should definitely do that. Uh, and speaking of ballparks, um, I, I, I fear we might run out of time without being able to talk about the collapse of the New York Mets. So, oh you know, Lord. that would be a shame. Is, is anything more predictable than us being crushingly disappointed by what <laughs> happened in the playoffs? No, and for that matter, falling out of first at the end of the year. Um, oh well, I was I was in Atlanta for for the Saturday night game. So, so you're saying it's your fault? It might be. All right, um, we have a hard stop in less than an hour. So based on past Let's performance, go. this is going to be an issue. <laughs> Let's jump in. Uh, Trump. So what do you want to do with Trump first? Um, I defer to you. Where, there's a, there's a whole bunch of different threads. Why don't what about this? Um, the overview of the different pieces of ongoing litigation that we're going to cover. Okay. So I think there are now two major threads. Um, one of which is the continuing Mar-a-Lago Palooza related litigation, um, which really sort of accelerated since our last episode. Yeah. We kind of um, missed the whole, we were just like <laughs> guessing what might happen. Maybe it'll be this the whole special master thing has been between episodes for us. It's pretty remarkable how long it's been since we recorded. Yeah. Um, but so the so to make a long story short, on Labor Day, Judge Cannon issued this pretty stunning ruling um, that appointed a special master that enjoined the Justice Department from using, relying upon all of the materials it had seized from Mar-a-Lago, except for certain counterintelligence purposes, and that even that was vague. Um, DOJ sought a, a partial stay of that decision from the 11th Circuit, um, especially the part that blocked DOJ from accessing the classified materials that it seized from Mar-a-Lago. The, a, a unanimous three-judge panel of the 11th Circuit, including two Trump appointees, sided with DOJ. Um, Bobby, I think, wrote a very thorough and, um, uh, to me, unanswerable opinion yeah, about very why. Yes. Um Trump then waited a couple can we, of weeks. Can we say real quick? I mean, basically, the, the fundamental point that he does not yes. own these documents. These are not these are not his documents. In the fact, that's right. The fact that you were pre- that you were the government, yes. before, you were the executive before when they were created, doesn't mean they are your property right. into the future. They belong to the abstract entity that is the government, not the former president. But also, I mean, and I think the other, but the other key point is, that, so that was part of the 11 circuits analysis. I mean, right, they walk, they walk through each of the so-called Ritchie factors. Um, but I also think that a really important thread of the 11 circuits opinion, and I wrote about this in an op-ed, was this footnote where the judges went out of their way to reject any insinuation, because Trump had never so much like really argued this, but any insinuation that there were reasons to believe DOJ hadn't acted above board. Um Right, and the court goes out of its way to say we see no evidence. No, there's, um, there's zero actual evidence. Look, this kind of reminds me of all the election. Uh, yes, very much so. Where yes. in, there's lots of 
press conferences and tweets or, or whatever whatever platforms uh, being used. Lots of talk, but in court, nada. Right. And so, but I still think it was helpful for the, I mean, the 11th Circuit, you know, there was this remarkable amicus brief that Texas had filed in the 11th Circuit about why we shouldn't take, you know, the, everything the Biden administration does is sketchy. We shouldn't believe anything they say. Um, I thought that was a, an awkward thing for Texas to file. Um, but all that aside, I, mean, I, just, I thought that the opinion did a very good job, not just of defending the technical ruling, which was staying Judge Cannon's injunction, but really pouring cold water on the conspiracy theories surrounding the Mar-a-Lago search. Um, Trump then waits a couple of weeks before filing an application with the Supreme Court to vacate the 11th Circuit's stay. Um, this was on October 4th. Um, it obviously, Bobby, got a lot of attention. Hello, Shadow Docket. Someone should write a book about it. Someone should write a, uh, Someone should write a um, sequel. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> but actually, I mean, I, I think the folk, I mean, I, I don't think anyone who understands what's going on ever thought this application had any chance. No, no. Um, no and it, and it and, duly got nothing. But, but, but I should say, but part of that's because the application was um, not about the merits of the search. It was not about, Bobby, even the ownership issue that you described, right? It was a very, I mean, it's, it, I, I, as I tweeted, it's like, it's what a good lawyer does to appease a bad client, right? It was a, I think, meritless, but non-frivolous jurisdictional argument about what the 11th Circuit could and could not do in the DOJ stay case without any sort of discussion of the merits. And so it was part of why I think it was a non-starter is because what it was seeking was so modest and minimal that it was never going to work. So anyway, on um, what, Thursday of last week, right, the Supreme Court denied the application with no explanation with no public dissent. So that's, I, so, so what's left of track one, we said there were two tracks, what's left of track one, DOJ still has its appeal on the merits of Judge Cannon's September 5th order pending in the 11th Circuit. Um, and so, you know, there's going to be a little more litigation there. DOJ is now basically asking the 11th Circuit to just, you know, reverse Judge Cannon's order end the special master process and just like go get get us back to where we were before Judge Cannon got her got her hands on this case, which raises the question: Is the special master process actually uh, churning away in the background now, or is there any way it could just com be complete and done and kind of moot the issue? There's only so much. There's not that much work for them to do in the big. I mean, I think that's part of DOJ's argument. It's like what's you know what's left at this point. So yeah. so I think so I think the Mar-a-Lago sort of search litigation is basically just about over, um, right? Uh, whether anything comes of that, of course, is up to DOJ, and we won't we we may never know that. We certainly won't know it anytime soon. Um, yeah. Then there's Thank the other track, which is the subpoena. Let me let me pause this real quick because I don't see I can see the volume indicator for your feed moving, but I don't see anything happening when I'm speaking, and I'm worried that it's oh I, I I see it. You do? That's interesting. Yeah. Okay, all right, ignore that. Hey everybody, <laughs> little tech talk. <laughs> that was a that, that that was a that was a technical interlude. Technical interlude. We won't even we won't even uh, clip that out because you know we want the show to be authentic. We're like a garage band, Steve. Just all authentic. No no production values whatsoever. Um, all right. So what else is happening in Trumplandia besides the, the Mar-a-Lago mess? I know there was a um, little bit of attention to the uh, the revelation that there was this particular employee who said Trump himself had ordered me to move the boxes around. So that 
that sort of adds another brick into the wall of his direct personal involvement in what ultimately right. is the mishandling of these documents. So that this goes to where I sort of ended, which is now I think it's just up to DOJ. And are they going to try to prosecute anybody for anything relating out of Mar-a-Lago? And if so, who and for what? So yeah. we'll see. Mm -hmm. um, okay. And then sort of thread two is the January 6th committee. Um, and the vote the committee took last week um, to formally subpoena former President Trump to appear before the committee to give testimony. Um, and I, I guess I, 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 I think the politics of that are a conversation unto themselves that I'm not sure, you know, we're in a especially good position to have legally, right? I mean, I want to talk about just the, the law perspective. So yeah. it's, not, it's not unprecedented for Congress to subpoena a former president. Um, John Tyler, if, you, if we have to go all the way back there, yeah, yeah. Um, there are plenty of examples of sitting presidents testifying before Congress, let alone former presidents. So, you know, I, I don't think there's like a former president immunity defense, right? That Trump's going right. to be able to. Right. to like, congratulations. Your parting gifts include these mementos from the White House and immunity from ever having to respond to the nation's anything. legislature. Right. 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 That, that, that's clearly not the case. Um, the problem is that, you know, assuming Trump doesn't just ignore the subpoena because then he risks the Steve Bannon treatment of having the subpoena referred to DOJ for a contempt of Congress prosecution, assuming he actually tries to fight it in court. You know, Bobby, I assume it will take some time for that process to run itself through. And, you know, the, I, I think we have to be realistic about the possibility that come January 3rd, the Republicans have recaptured the House um, and disband the January 6th committee and retract the subpoena. Yeah, I think it's actually quite possible that's exactly what will happen. And we've been saying on this show for years and years that a big part of what goes on in Trump-related litigation is extending the clock, running out the clock. It has worked again and again and again, usually with much longer timelines than this one. Now, of course, the election could go the other way, um, but what you just described seems a very plausible scenario. That, If I had to bet, I'd say that's what ends up happening here. Yeah, I think all this is just to say that I think the fate of this subpoena rests on the outcome of the election. But if the Democrats somehow hold on to the House, I actually think, you know, at some point there will probably be some leverage, not that Trump will testify before the committee, but maybe that there's some sort of backroom interview or something. Yes. And, that, and then it ends up being kind of a political question when he's deciding yes. whether and to what extent he wants to resist. He may decide at some point that what he wants to do is to get in there and make a spectacle of the thing. And it's going to be. Yeah, although although I, if I'm, if I'm, I'm anyone, if I'm anyone near Trump, I, if I, I'm, I'm telling him, don't do it. Um, yes, the, but the, that, the last, right. that matters not. Uh, the last thing I want to say about this is, you know, I know there's a lot of sort of people like, why is the January 6th committee doing it? Um, I do think that it is a fair reading of the work of the January 6th committee that it has succeeded in calling into question former President Trump's state of mind with respect to did he know and understand that he had lost, right? And was he nevertheless, you know, doing what he was doing? not because he genuinely believed he had won, but because even though he accepted he had lost, he was trying to hold on to power, right? Like, I, like that is a subjective state of mind inquiry where the person who is best situated to answer it is Trump. No, I think you're right about that. I mean, obviously there are a lot of people who are not open to hearing this, 
but I, it, for those who are willing to hear, I think the committee's done a good job of that. And more generally, I think the, the nature of their body of work has been to try to create a complete record. And they've added things to the record that were unknown before their work. Um, some of the stuff we're familiar with, some of it's been surprising, shocking in its detail. And, and some of that has gone to his behavior on that day. I, I don't think for a second they're going to get anything. You know, there's not going to be a Jack Nicholson, uh, a few good men, um, you know, did did you order the insurrection? You're damn right I did. I don't think we're going to get that sort of uh, apotheosis moment, and, and no one should expect that. It'll be a train wreck if and when they get him on there, because he's he's not going to say anything he doesn't want to say, and he's not going to answer the questions they're posing. Um, it'll be. But I under, but 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 that said, I understand why. The, I mean, I understand the symbolism of saying that, like, there's now a question. You know, Trump's state of mind is the key issue. No, that's, but and also that you got to consider, like, well, what's the alternative? Op, there's symbolism involved in in not kind of having the cojones to uh, summon him to try to do this, and so it may it may not be ideal. It may be a situation that politically actually benefits him um, right. that he you know, turn around doesn't advance the goals of the committee. But to not even try suggests almost an intimidation that I don't think yep. they could follow. Yep. Um, I'll just note here that I recently listened via Audible to. Uh, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser's book, The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2020. Um, oh, Steve's got his copy right there. So, um, so Peter and Susan, we are we are supporting uh, y'all by <laughs> purchasing in various ways your work. So it's, it's really good. Um, you know, a lot of it, for those who follow it closely, a lot of it's familiar, but there was definitely a lot that, that seemed new to me. And um, the... The weight of it all, Steve, I felt, so we've, it's almost like we've been on a vacation from thinking too hard and too closely about those years and some of the, the uglier moments. It, you know, to read that book or to listen to it is to dive deeply, deep dive back, right, in, back into time. it. Yep. Um, but it, they put a pretty heavy emphasis and a pretty explicit emphasis on the connectivity between the larger authoritarian wave around the planet, um, which is on... <laughs> Um, fulsome display, of course, in, in the monstrosity of what the Russians have been doing on the uh, on the in, the imperial moment um, that that she is having in Beijing this past weekend, and in all the things associated with this, and lesser versions of it elsewhere, um, they draw that thread very clearly, saying, "Look, what what we're trying to chronicle here," and I'm putting words in their mouth. But I think Peter and Susan were basically saying, "We're trying to chronicle this in light of where this goes." if people do not take it seriously enough. And that's not a comment, you know, coming from me, this is not a comment about where conservatism goes. This is about Trumpism and authoritarianism and rejection of, well, let's start with truth and the rule of law. And I think it's pretty powerful as a reminder of that connectivity. I, I, I mean, I agree. I just, I look at the, the poll that came out yesterday that suggests that more Americans are worried about the economy than about the future of our democracy. Yeah. And I shudder. Yeah. Um, while it has always been number one, except in really good times, people, people yeah. have the, the bandwidth in mentally and emotionally to think of other things other than economic self-interest. But when, when the chips are down, I feel like politically, it, it always is the economy number one. I just, I just, I mean, if I, I'm not saying the midterms are that election, but if we come to an election in the near future where the choice is between democracy and short-term economic benefit, you know, I'm 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 nervous about whether we're going to make the right choice. Yeah, I think that abstract 
ideals are a harder sell for voters in the privacy of the booth than whatever their whatever the basis for it, whatever their understanding yep. of economic trends and how things are yep. affecting them. It, you know, yep. Should it be that way? No, it should, shouldn't be that way. But it, is it that way? Yeah, I think it's I think it's kind of always been that way. Oi. Yeah. Uh, all right. Shall we exit? On that, on, that, on, on that uplifting note, should we talk about drone strikes? Yeah, let's let's talk about it. So we don't have the new presidential policy memorandum, the PPM, we are told by the uh, uh, irreplaceable Charlie Savage in, a, in an exclusive for The Times. Um, th- this is described in his piece as a classified policy that was the formalization of what's been the case is if I'm understanding this correctly, what's been the case throughout the Biden administration. So um, a while back, I do believe you and I at some point covered this, that um, there's been a, a bit of a tug of war from the Obama years into the Trump years, now the Biden years, about something that had kind of been formalized by President Obama as the presidential policy guidance on what the what the procedural rules are for conducting lethal strikes whether it's drone based or a manned aircraft or or a, uh, you know a special operations raid doesn't matter to the platform outside of a zone of active hostilities so the idea is you have certain areas where we're going to geographically define them as the war zones and there the rules will be as determined by the uh, you know whatever set of uh, orders govern the military operations and perhaps CIA operations in that area but Everywhere else in the world where Al-Qaeda or Islamic State uh, or AQAP might be, these not active hostilities locations, the idea is if somebody's going to use lethal force there, it's got to follow these procedures. Um, and there's elements of them going back to the Obama years that have to do with a near certainty that there will not be collateral damage, or rather, near certainty there won't be collateral damage uh, with some complications that treat uh, military-age men or people who appear from the intelligence to be military age men differently from others. Um, stuff about uh, capture cannot, you know, if, if capture is feasible, you're supposed to capture first. There's a preference for capture, other odds and ends like that. Um, but I think the key piece is how far up the chain of decision making it has to go to put a person's name on the list of people who, once spotted under those circumstances, can be the basis for such an attack. In other words, being put on the targeting list. And uh, suffice to say that the one thing that's it's already been true for the Biden administration, but the one big headline that is locked in now with his new PPM is um, that's a presidential decision, at least as a default matter. I think there's exceptions, you know, carved in throughout from what we're seeing, but it's the president's determination. Whereas in theater, it doesn't have to go all the way up to the White House for that final judgment reading the dossier. Now, this this reminds me of, of. you know, books by Charlie and others where they describe in the Obama years, um, back when there used to be, you know, much more visibility about this, all of this, and a lot more of all this. Um, and you'd read about, you know, there'd be one person in the National Security Council, one cabinet secretary kind of taking this position and another taking that position and arguments back and forth. Um, this sort of jurist, this courtroom-like quality of deciding what the evidence shows and whether the person is in fact an active member of the Islamic State or Al-Qaeda. That's the kind of thing we're talking about. So um, so nothing, I think nothing will be different than, than what it's been over the past, uh, well, two years now under the Biden administration, because these have been something very close to this, if not exactly this, has been the rule as a temporary matter. And they've just quietly locked it in. 
Um, so does it matter? Um, well, it, it, it's tricky because more broadly, as you and I have recounted many times, more broadly, the, the sort of the communications brilliance of the Biden position has been to not talk a lot publicly about whether we are still in a war on terrorism. They, they are legally defending the idea that the war model and thus the AUMF are still active. And indeed, periodically, there are lethal strikes. Um, and there's still stuff that happens in Iraq and Syria, which remain the two places on the globe identified as areas of active hostilities. Um, but more broadly, the, the pace of operations has just elsewhere kind of gotten, except Somalia, perhaps, it's gotten very, very quiet. We've had uh, one, maybe two strikes in Afghanistan. There are somewhat frequent strikes in Somalia against al-Shabaab. But it's been a couple of years, I believe, since any strike with lethal force in Yemen, which is remarkable. And it's been many years, at least four years, I think, since it's been done in the Fatah region of Pakistan. So um, it's not that they've said the global war on terrorism is over. They obviously don't use that rhetoric at all. Um, they have not legally abandoned the war model. But the pace of things has just dropped down uh, to a very low, uh, very low pace of operations. And therefore, does it matter that this particular policy has been locked in? It's been the policy for a while. Not much is happening anyways. Is that a cause? Is that an effect? Or is it just a coincidence or correlation? Very hard to say. But one thing's for sure. You know, we have quietly moved beyond the post 9-11 period, which is not to say that the threat is gone, because it's not. AQAP, Islamic State, Al-Qaeda, in, in various degrees, they're all out there in, in other groups besides, and there's been further metastasization. Um, but the the paradigmatic dominance of the counterterrorism model clearly has fallen back into the into a secondary tier. It's still important for the federal government, but it's not the dominant model anymore. I, I, I mean, I think that's all true. I, I would just add one last thought, which ties together the drone strike policy the state secrets memo we're about to talk about and the redress data transfer EO that we're going to sort of briefly allude to, which is all of these, I think, Bobby, are salutary developments and all of them can be undone with the stroke of a pen. And and so, you know, for meaningful change in this policy space, I mean, this is, I'm just going to sound like a broken record, but hey, Congress, remember? <laughs> um, like the, the inability to get any meaningful, I mean, you know, we're not, let's not, it's FISA renewal, right? I mean, like just the, 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 the sort of abdication of any meaningful responsibility by the legislature in this space, I think is, you know, leaving us to these sort of stopgap band-aid, you know, executive driven policy changes. I'm, I'm not sure I'm as big a fan probably as you are. Some yeah. of these, well, and, and I definitely don't think. Who needs state? a separation of powers? I don't, I don't know. No, big fan of these policies. And therefore I don't, I don't bemoan the, uh, um, absence of statutory lock-in on them. Let's talk in that context about the state secrets privilege uh, three-pager. I, I don't want to kick this one too hard. I, it's just not very important, in my opinion. I think it actually is... is I'll, I'll describe what's in it, and then I'll talk about what I think is really going on here. Um, the critical thing is to understand that in the Obama administration, Attorney General Holder promulgated DOJ's sort of first big formal public policy about this. And it added in layers of review before the Justice Department would go to court to defend the privilege. Certain sign-offs, certain people had to be involved. It was one of these classic 
let's make the attorney general or the deputy attorney general or you know have various high level officials have to have personal buy in on top of the existing procedural formalities of the state secrets privilege, which going back to Reynolds in the 1950s, um, in the modern era has always required that the the agency that owns the information at issue, as it were, the one that wants the privilege invoked on its behalf because there's some litigation that involves it, the head of that agency already had to personally consider whether the privilege should be raised and had to personally ask for it to be raised. The, uh, the DOJ innovation in back in, what was it, 2009 even, Steve? Sometime very early in the Obama administration. Um, we basically, basically said like, okay, but there's also now got to be sort of a, a broader Justice Department leadership engagement to see whether we really agree with this. It can't just be done by the litigators on behalf of the intelligence community. So that's already the deal. Um, the new policy, which dropped very kind of quietly at the end of September, um, so, so quietly, in fact, I was not aware, even though I have a, a, a short essay, a case comment coming out in Harvard Law Review that is, is now it's too late to reference this thing. I was anxious when I saw there was a new policy and I wasn't going to be able to reference it until I read the thing and I realized, oh, this wouldn't have changed anything I wrote about the recent Supreme Court cases that touched on the privilege. Um, so there's some additional procedures. Um, I don't mean to say it's absolutely nothing, but they just kind of thickened and, and further specified the procedural wickets about who's got to sign off on invocations. It's not changing the the calibration of when it's appropriate for the government to assert the privilege. Um, there's, there's greater clarification about consultation between DOJ and the Director of National Intelligence. There's a timeline that I think is probably something they were trying to build into this and helped give rise to this. Um, they've created a 40 calendar day default rule for when DOJ needs to get notice of, of the desire on the part of the intelligence community to have the privilege invoked. Um, and I think what's part of what's going on here is there probably have been instances where DOJ got jammed, where there was not a lot of notice given, not a lot of time for the senior officials to engage on the question. And this is an effort, albeit uh, suffering from an ex the inevitable exception for when there's no time, but it's an effort to try to put things on a slower pace so they can do a more serious review. Um, and, you know, nothing, nothing wrong with that. That's a good thing, I think. Uh, and then there's a similar sort of, you can almost read between the lines that this has been a problem in the past, a similar requirement that uh, if circumstances change, then the attorney general's got to be brought back in or that the, the head of the, uh, a requesting agency and the attorney general both must be brought back into the decision-making process for a second bite at the apple. So this is the idea that, well, it may, it may have presented in a way that warranted the privilege on the front end, but if at some point in the litigation, there's new information that might call that into question, the AG in particular is supposed to have a second chance to reconsider this. And so too on appeal. Um, is this, is this just sort of a, a bit of house cleaning or was there any episode that got under the attorney general's skin when he realized things had changed and he wasn't asked to reconsider? Don't know. Um, anything wrong with this? Not at all. These all seem very, very smart, uh, modest tweaks, but they don't, they don't change in any meaningful way, in my opinion, where we're going to see the privilege invoked or how hard the government's going to defend it. Um, there's a little bit at the end about how in, in criminal cases where the state secrets privilege is not available to the government, that that's always been clear about the state secrets privilege. You, if you're, if the government's prosecuting 
and the privileges in the mix, what it's you don't get to invoke the state secrets privilege and and get the benefit of that. If you have to, you have to drop a charge. Um, it, but this is where SEPA fits in. Uh, but there's always been this sort of interesting academic question about in the criminal cases, do you nonetheless, before going through the SEPA process, when the government wants to to get the benefits of SEPA, does it also need to go through these state secrets procedures? And now DOJ's policy is, it, it effectively says, look, the courts are split on this and what the nature of what's going on is. But just to be clear, we're going to go ahead and use these procedures in that setting too. Um, so a little additional layer of process, um, no real harm in it, uh, maybe some good in it. And and so, Steve, I look at that and I think, interesting, um, this is not particularly significant. There's no harm in it. It's not something I feel like it's it's a problem that Congress isn't involved. If Congress got involved and this is all they did, th- that would be uh, quite a uh, quite a limited intervention. No, I agree. I just I, I think it's just so so I agree that this particular guidance is modest. I just think that the sort of the broader space it's occupying, which is the lack of any fleshing out of the circum of of the scope of the privilege of what it does and doesn't protect of how I mean like I anyway, this is a longer conversation than we don't have time for. But um yes. Um speaking of Bobby, the Department of Justice, did you know that on October seventh the Department of Justice created a new court? Oh, is that oh, let's see, is it the data protection review court or something? The data like prote- that? The, the DPRC, which sounds an awful lot like the DPRK. I was about to say that <laughs> North Korea in the house at DOJ. What? Um, yeah, is the DPRC gonna be uh well okay, put on your Fed Courts hat. We're using the word. Corporate. It's not a court. It's, it's not. It's not yeah. a court. We're using it's the word not a court. court here. Maybe we should. It's not. not I, I usually not teach my fit. federal court. I usually teach my federal court students that co- that we're actually pretty good about calling things courts that are courts and not calling things courts that aren't. But here we have but failed. Steve, how can we convince the EU to let the data flow if we don't call it a court? Well, so this is so we will we will talk about this. It'll this re, this really warrants, I think, Bobby, almost an episode unto itself. But wait, wait, like a lot. Are you calling for a? Deep dive. Yes, but did you did you get my pun? Oh, I'm sorry, I totally missed it. I wasn't listening to you. What? This warrants an episode unto itself. Uh, ooh, very nice, very nice warrant. <laughs> uh, it reminds me of Justice Stevens's dissent in Anderson versus Creighton, where he complains about the court's literally unwarranted extension of. <laughs> oh, very, very nice, very nice. Those 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 puns were in order. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, all right. So long story short, FISA orders are not warranted. Yes, yes, no yes. We, we have talked before about the ongoing, I don't even know what to call it, contratomp over cross-border data transfers, given the much more stringent data protection rules that are in effect in the European Union. We have talked about the Schrems litigation in which I was involved as an expert witness, um, culminating with the European Court of Justice's decision, um, basically holding that the sort of U.S. protections for EU citizens are inadequate. Um, and so the sort of the, the next salvo, right, because it's, I mean, this, this I think, Bobby, does go back to Congress. Because it's impossible to get Congress to pass a statute that would actually get anywhere close to what the Europeans think they want and need, um, the, this has now become an executive branch process. Um, on October 7th, President Biden released an executive order that Bobby, I think, I think we we have been at least sort of quietly aware was in the works for the better part of a year, mm-hmm. um, right? 
And the, the we, I'm not going to do it justice if I do a quick dive, but the short version is the whole purpose of the executive order is to ratchet up protections for EU citizens um, and to give them a brand new redress mechanism for circumstances in which their data is unlawfully or wrongly acquired. Um, and to do that, Bobby, entirely for the purpose of satisfying the sort of the, the minimum requirements that the EU is imposing to allow U.S. businesses to freely exchange data, right, between their offices and, and, and infrastructure that's in the EU and outside of the EU. Exactly. So, so. The, uh, the, the European model is that uh, at least so long as there's someone willing to litigate it as to the other country, there has to be in the other country that will be receiving the data of EU citizens, uh, there has to be systems in place that satisfy EU legal standards for the protection of that data. Um, and there, there is a process for certifying that countries are okay. It's like the UK has a certification. They're okay in the EU's view. Uh, I believe Argentina is okay. Um, I, I'll ask a question that I think Stuart Baker asks a lot is, where's all the litigation involving data transfer to China? Um, maybe there are, is such a case, but I'm not aware of it. If any listeners are aware of it, I'd, I'd love to know the details. I mean, do people in the EU not use WeChat? And it, has WeChat passed muster here? Um, but I do know this. Um, it is always under litigation pressure whether the United States takes enough care. And um, we, we keep getting bounced as inadequate. This is the latest attempt, carefully curated attempt to try to craft something that frankly will have the, the least possible impact limiting what we do in our intelligence activities while still satisfying the European courts so that the, this important dimension of, of modern economic life can, can roll forward. And so they've said things in this order along the lines of at least vis-a-vis -vis EU citizens, or maybe we should say EU territory, any intelligence collection will only be, be done when, quote, necessary, uh, close quote, to advance a, a stated intelligence priority. Now, I love this because as we all know from con law, as we all know from McCulloch versus Maryland and the Bank of the United States controversy, the word necessary has both a hard and a soft meaning. There's what you might call the Madisonian interpretation and the Hamiltonian interpretation of it that was at issue in that famous case. Uh, do we mean hard necessity as in but for necessity? Like you're only going to take this step if it's you know, it's kind of a least restrictive alternative kind of concept, or do you really just mean it? Is it just a, a synonym for uh, convenient? Like this is useful. That's the Hamiltonian interpretation right. of necessary that prevailed in McCulloch versus Maryland famously. Um, Steve, I do believe the executive order does not actually, you know, it says necessary. It doesn't raise the definitional question, but it leaves open the possibility. I would say certainty that the U S interpretation is more along the lines of, flexible necessity I cannot imagine it's hard necessity or at least it's an it's an understanding of necessity where it would not be hard to satisfy this programmatically but i, I will just say there there is an iron i mean we will talk in much more detail about the details because the details are fascinating i mean the the dprc is quite a thing um right, right. so let's pivot to that so like that was the thing i was talking about was the substantive piece but the but then you've also got it you've got to have a court that can hear your claim, right? And so one way to do this would have been to create some kind of cause of action in district court. That is not what they did. So, so well, because the executive branch can't do that by itself. 
Well, yes, there is that. But also, they are certainly not asking Congress to do it. Um, right. So what is this thing that they're calling a court and, and explain, because not all the listeners are going to immediately grasp, why is this not actually a court? They said it's a court. It's going to it's going to act like a court. It's like, is this like the Facebook oversight board where we kind of, yes, it's a court. Yes. Is it like the um, fob? Kind of. Um, so again, I think, I think to do it justice, we need to have more time, but the short, short version is it is basically an internal executive branch adjudicative mechanism where the executive branch is allowing itself right to be sort of claimed against by EU citizens who believe their data has been wrongly acquired. Um, and if the citizen, if the EU citizen succeeds in their challenge, the executive branch is committing itself, is binding itself, right? To not take any, to, to sort of not take any further action based upon that data, to sort of, to, to segregate it, to destroy it, to do whatever it is to sort of, you know, provide redress, which is the whole point. Now, yeah. what is, stunning about this, and I'm kind of shocked that this hasn't gotten more attention, is that in this move, the Biden administration has given far greater um, redress to EU citizens than Americans currently have. Um, Right? I mean, this wouldn't have been necessary if it actually were the case that there were adequate existing judicial remedies for even American victims of unlawful surveillance. And so I just, you know, it's, I, every part of me understands why the Biden administration did it. Um, Query whether it will succeed and query whether this is actually a world, you know, this is the way that we should be doing these kinds of policies, going back to my point about Congress. But, you know, say la vie. We'll we'll do, we'll do more on this in a future episode. We'll definitely go deeper on this one. So much more to say. Yes, um, okay. and, and, but 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 in the and but I should say in the ballpark of you know tech and data and news. I mean, I think it's also worth noting that since last we recorded, um, the Fifth Circuit decided the HB twenty social media content moderation case, which has big implications for our universe. Right, the Fifth Circuit upheld Absolutely. the Texas social media law on the ground, well, on a series of grounds, but sort of largely on the theory that. Um, that content moderation is conduct, not speech, that these social media platforms are common carriers. I mean, all the sort of big, bad. um, It is now, I think, Bobby, inevitable that the Supreme Court's going to take this issue up this term. For sure, because the 11th Circuit, the Florida. Came out exactly the other way. But it's a different view. Um, But also the idea has really caught fire more than I think years ago people would have thought possible. It's going to be really big when the court has to take this up. Nah, I Something else we can talk about in the future episode is why I think the common carrier idea is nonsense, but that's a separate issue. Um, and then there's also the court granted cert in a pair of cases about Section 230 of the Communications Decency Act um, and 230 immunity. So this is actually and quietly even better, relating to the Anti-Terrorism Act and stuff. Correct. You and I, year maybe decades ago, yes, had some peripheral involvement in studying this. Yes. You know, when can the material support concept be used as the basis for civil liability? Where yes. bank banks that that Hamas interacted with uh, kept being sued, like Arab Bank, I think, and a few others. Right. So, yeah. suffice so to say, this is actually. I mean, you know, at the beginning of a Supreme Court term, people are often looking for themes. I think one of the big themes is going to be sort of tech and speech. It's an um, Yeah, that's yes. that's the and that's you know that's right because these are some of the big issues of our times. No surprise to see the court yeah. there. Now you have some stuff moving through the docket, and I know that we're running short on time, so I want to make sure we talk about both the book 
and your litigation. Wow. What's happening in uh, in the court of Steve? In the court of Steve, um, <laughs> another, so, um, another faux court. So it, <laughs> what is a court? Um, that should be our episode title. What is a court anyway? What is a um, court? So, um, in, so I, I think folks who, folks who have listened before know that I've been involved in Steve Donziger's appeal of his criminal contempt conviction. We filed a cert petition, Bobby, in September, um, asking the Supreme Court to step in and consider whether federal courts, back to what is a court, have the power to appoint private special prosecutors um, to try criminal contempt offenses that DOJ refuses to prosecute. Um, DOJ, Bobby, had initially waived its right to file a response, um, but the Supreme Court just yesterday um, called for a response from DOJ. uh, So DOJ now is going to have to file some kind of opposition, I assume, and then we'll reply. So, you know, this this probably pushes a decision from the court about whether to take this case or not into at least January, maybe even February. But um, so that's one. Um, We had a cert petition that was pending about whether the federal courts of appeals could resolve the existence of like a Bivens cause of action um, when the only issue that's being appealed is qualified immunity. So the sort of the interaction between defenses and causes of action um, that was denied last week. So there's one thing off my desk. Uh, And then, but also just yesterday um, we filed a petition for rehearing on Bonk in Larrabee in the DC circuit um, about uh, uh, courts, court marshals for retired service members, that old, that old soapbox. That old um, and um, folks might remember back in August, we lost two to one in the DC circuit. Judges Rao and Walker held that it was constitutional to court martial retirees for post-retirement offenses. Judge Tatel dissented. And so now we are asking the full DC circuit if they will be here the case. Um, no timeline on on how that will move. Um, indeed, the DC Circuit often moves slowly on on bonks. Um, case in point, Al Gila, the big Gitmo case. Bobby, that was argued September thirtieth, twenty twenty one, and we're wow. still waiting for a decision. So God, the wheels move back slowly. Listen to our prior episodes. I can even remember what we thought about that. <laughs> Maybe that's what they're what doing. What did we think we thought? Maybe um, they were. And then there's the book episode. Um, yes, and the then uh, yeah. you say there's a there's a URL, tiny URL. Tell me that again. Tinyurl.com slash shadow docket. Um, so anyway, so on September 6th, um, we dropped the, the pre-order link for the book. Um, the book is now actually, Bobby, just about done. We're up to galleys. I get my galleys, Very I think, in a couple nice. weeks. Um, and I just want to say, I mean, I, we've talked about this a little bit before. Like the book is about the Supreme Court shadow docket, but it's really about a lot more. And it's not meant like to be limited to like technical Supreme Court nerds. Like the, my goal in the book is to actually make it easier for everybody, lawyers and non-lawyers alike, to understand the sort of the court more holistically, right? So not just the, the substance of merits decisions like Dobbs and Bruin and whatever, but actually like the procedures that the court uses and utilizes um, to get there. And, and basically how, how like much Bobby, much of the court's power actually comes from, right, the procedures. So my hope is that the book is going to be accessible to a non-legal audience as much as a legal audience. Um, and that is going to be sort of enriching everyone's understanding of how the court does what it does. Even though, I mean, I'm, there's a very clear through line of criticism, but there's also a descriptive account that I hope even those who are more inclined to defend the current court will still find interesting and and useful. 
So I'm on your Amazon page for the book and I was checking things Uh-oh. out. I see there's an audio version. Do you know who's who reads it? Is it you? I think that might be. So there, there, there are folks online who have really, who have put in a campaign for Karen to do it. Um, <laughs> so she could annotate it as she goes. <laughs> what is Karen um, that? You know, she'd read about, she'd read two or three pages and then decide it was too long. I mean, um, I, I, I want that version, but I want her fully empowered <laughs> to insert commentary along the right. way, like whenever she wants to. Um, I, 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 I was, I was wondering if Justice Alito might be available to read the, the audiobook version. I think that would be a big hit. I love every bit about this. I think the Karen commentary, the, the annotated, <laughs> annotated shadow docket with commentary. The director's, the, the director's cut. <laughs> um, your book weighs 1.74 pounds, I see. <laughs> uh, I don't know how they know that since we haven't even finalized the, the, I, the thing. I guess they, they're good at estimating these things. I'm, I'm thoroughly entertained. I'm also interested, like, um, you know, if you want, if you bought this, you might also be interested in, and uh, uh, I, <laughs> Jared Kushner's uh, just released memoirs in there. <laughs> That's pretty good. But also Linda Greenhouse's book. So uh, Chemerinsky's book, a couple of Chemerinsky books. Mostly it makes yeah, sense. The, yeah. the Jared Kushner. Linda, Linda's, Linda's, book, Linda's book fits. I don't know about Jared Kushner. Oh my so. God, this is great. All right. Um, fortunately, we are, but anyway, so so I want to say like, I would, you know, obviously I would love it if folks would pre-order the book. Pre-orders are enormously important to a book's success because when, you know, the sort of the bestseller people do their thing, they're looking at all the purchases of the book. Bobby, not the first week it's on the market, but up through the first week it's on the market. So all all pre-orders count toward those those numbers. So um, buy one for your friends, buy one for your family. Um, you know, if you want me to sign it, send it to me and I'll send and I'll sign it and send it back. It's, um, it's Cyber Tuesday, time for your holiday shopping. Buy this morning, tinyurl.com slash shadow docket. Even though um, it won't be out till May. It's more of like a, a Mother's Day present. Steve, let's give away some free podcast episodes. If you buy the book, tune into this feed <laughs> and you will, you will every time we put up an episode, you'll have free access to it. Uh, Unless and, and until we ever start charging for this. I love that free 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 access to our free podcast. Free access. Um, so so as as I had as I had hoped and predicted, um, we have run out of time to talk about the Mets, which is great because I really don't want to talk about the Mets. Yeah, other time's than run say, out on us, just like it ran <laughs> out on them. Good heavens! <laughs> um, all right, we will we will find more time for frivolity when we have time to be frivolous. Um, Bobby, over under next episode coming out in seven weeks. Oh, under for sure, absolutely under. <laughs> What if I say four weeks? Over. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we will try to get back to you guys as soon as possible. Until then, he is at Bobby Chesney, and he's on tour. I'm at Steve underscore Vladek. We are at NSL Podcasts. Um, The book is tinyurl.com slash shadow docket. The Mets are terrible, and the Giants are somehow five and one. So stay safe out there, everybody. (laughs) Adios.